Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bitter Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. Episode 10, two types of violence, political and economic. The second impeachment of Donald Trump puts political violence in the spotlight. What is political violence? What are examples? Many black voters are wondering whether the Biden administration will support a reparations bill. The debate will highlight historical contemporary political violence. Think slavery, lynching and police shootings. What gets ignored, but shouldn't, is economic violence. But what is economic violence and why should we deal with it? Sage, hit me. Hey, science. What's happening, man? Uh, so we back. I want a new word, man. COVIDy. COVIDy. Yo, man. Surviving pandemic, COVIDy. Yeah, man. Next installment of that 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 survival and what that's been what that's been about here in the uh, in the lab that we in, man. So yeah, it's been a it's been a minute since we've been on the mic. Probably a little too long for some of our listeners, so uh, yeah. but we didn't forget about y'all. We definitely always thinking about y'all. So here we are again. Last episode, just a quick recap. We talked about just futures. We talked about the equity trap and the thirteen percenters, and what had been in the news is the second impeachment. Uh, that's now behind us, and we're looking squarely at the work underway by the Biden administration to advance its agenda. And so we want to sort of pick this question back up again, uh, but now ask more specifically, how should we think about pursuing a just future science? And one option is the 13% approach that we introduced last episode and we discussed. Another option might be to pursue the eradication of violence. And if we put it in those terms, then the question becomes, well, what kind of violence needs to be eradicated? Uh, People are very familiar with the notion of political violence, and and so we want to we want to start with it. Uh, but there's also a concept that we like to put on the table, uh, and to suggest merits uh, attention, namely the notion of economic violence. And so we want to think about those two forms of violence, uh, the possible payoffs of addressing them, and the difficult road ahead. Uh, so. But for but before we get get to that, uh, science. Uh, anything anything you want to share, man? Uh, just on a on a personal tip. I mean, everything everything good. Stuff is um stuff is all right. You know, just chronically behind trying to trying to navigate the new space. What I find interesting is um so like you know I'm doing my classes right um. And they, uh, they they're moving along. I got class on police violence, the laws of the laws of change, and my social movement class. It's just like um, in this new world with like teaching online, it's like the new norms, right? So like if somebody was like looking at something they shouldn't have looked at, I was in class, I'd be behind them. I'd be like, "Hey, sister, hey, brother, what are you doing? You know, let's let's turn that down." But like now, I'm just like you're seeing pictures of of the students in their lives, and you you see you see the lights changing and stuff. So, you know, they're looking at other stuff, but it's like, you just have to let all that stuff slide. And so I've just been, 
I've just been letting stuff slide and just going with the conversation in class and, and hoping that they're, they're able to kind of get something out of it. And it's just, it's just odd because that, that feedback you get from folks on the spot when you know that you're kind of connected with them, it's hard to kind of mediate the technology and get that same kind of feel. Yeah, absolutely. I feel you, man, on that, on that one. And, uh, so, uh, you know, one of the things is, is, is kind of sometimes hard to sort of, uh, jump in exactly where you left off when you're in the heat of, heat of conversation. But I did want to start us off today by revisiting uh, something that we, we got into last time. And I don't feel like I uh, got complete satisfaction from the part of the exchange we had. So, I mean, you'll have some stuff to say about this too, but let me just say very quickly, this, this whole notion of the 13 percenters. Mm. Um, one way to think about what justice demands, put it like that. Uh, one way to think about what a just future should look like. And again, I mean, this is part of our three-part framework of thinking about diagnosis, um, uh, prognosis, and, and means. And, and as we typically do every couple of episodes, we try to remind our listeners about what we mean by those things. Now, with respect to the prognosis, this is sort of just roughly the ocean of a, of a utopia. What, what, what should this future look like that we're all trying to reach? And one story you might tell about that, it's a future where we sort of address various kinds of disparities that can happen along a number of dimensions. It could be racial, it could be class, it could be gender. Uh, in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, murder and other sorts of things, people have now this heightened sense of racial consciousness, not only in America, but globally. And one of the things they're paying attention to is disparities in the use of police violence uh, targeted to people of color, black people, brown people in particular. And people look at data about disparities of different sorts alongside the percentage of the population represented by black people. And so roughly the number is like 13% of the population. And so when they're talking about where we need to get to in terms of a future that's more just, one view is that we need to get to a future where those disparities don't look like this anymore, right? And so we, we have to get the right sort of proportionality, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, in the part of our conversation we had last time, and before you sort of give your reply, Science, I want you to sort of give your, your synopsis of what the 13% is all about. But but a part of the conversation we had, you know, I had said to you at one point, well, look, you know, obviously it would be great to live in a just future, a utopia, when we didn't have to take no ass beatings that we didn't, that, that weren't necessary from the police. Um, but, but if we are going to take them, at least, at least make sure that white people get their share of ass whoopings. I mean, that was kind of roughly the response. And your response to that was like, look, I, I, no, nah, I don't want to settle for that. I, I don't want there to be any, any beatings, period. But this raises, I think, a question that we didn't quite get to. Um, one debate you might have philosophically, science, when you're thinking about the notion of equality, right? Is the demand for equal outcomes or equal opportunity? These are two different things. So one of the things I was unclear about in our conversation is if you were pushing something like an equal outcomes view. 
And if you are, I think some people are going to think that's too strong, right? Now, maybe the, the beatings case is not like a great case of that. Maybe if we were talking about something like the wealth gap, we say there's a racial wealth gap. That might be a more tangible example to think about here, because the question is, should black and white people have the same amount of money in their accounts, right? Should they have the same amount of wealth? Or should they have the same opportunity to accumulate wealth, knowing that different things can lead to differential kinds of accumulation, right? Even under conditions of equality. I read you as taking a stronger view. And I know some people are going to think, hey, that's too problematic. That can't be what we want for a just future, right? Because we want to account for the fact that people could put in different amount of effort, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you might have equal opportunity, but you might get somebody that builds an empire and somebody that doesn't. Speak to that. I know that that's probably a lot to hit you with as we start the conversation. Yeah, no joke, man. It's like, but, but anyway, man, I, I think that was a leftover. Damn, okay, yeah, yeah, man, that was a leftover from last time. I didn't sleep the last couple of weeks, man, on that one, yeah. man. No, I mean, so in a certain level, um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, you throw me a curve. I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna bring out, I'm gonna bring out a, a tennis racket, and hit it back. But I'm just mm. like, um, mm. I don't want to have to choose. I think. Um, I think we all want to be able to do the same things in this life. And, and that, that I think is the kind of abstract conception of equality. We can all, if we wish to do the same things in this life. And so that's two things, right? One, that's the removal of barriers in your way so that you could do those things. But this presumes that you have equal footing and an equal path which does require the equality in terms of um, outcome. And so the opportunity gets the things out of your way. You'd be like, okay, so there's no like, you know, white only signs on the Fortune 400 kind of like leadership. Um, okay, that's fine. But okay, so how does someone get there? Okay, that means we need to have equal chances with regards to how we navigate this life, which to me suggests equality of the outcomes. And be like, okay, yeah, you could argue that some might want to put more time into something and thus they should take more out. But I'm like, I'm like, we need the equal footing. And so same caloric intake, same, you know, <laughs> same cleanliness of water. We need those basics. And then I remember um, Kimberly Crenshaw had this video which showed um, two individuals running except on a track, except one track was clear. And they could just jump over that little objects themselves and keep running. And the other one had holes in it. And it was like a vortex and it was raining and it was all this other stuff that was interfering with their ability to run. And so I think my conception of equality is equal playing field, but in a sense, e equal preparation. And so I, I think we need both components of that in order to actually have equality. Well... I don't know if that helps enough science. I mean, if you if you remove the barriers, if you take the holes out of the pathway of the one person running, it doesn't follow from that that they both going to come in exactly at the same point in the race. That's true. Presumably. If you give if you give two people, if you give two people the same opportunity, you can still get differentiation and the results, it seems. That's true, but the differentiation should not be a function of 
how much money their parent okay. had okay. and what neighborhood that put you in and okay. what gate, what, what water that got you access to, what networks that got you access to. So the equalization of that. So the barrier coming down is irrelevant if one person's on the bottom of the Grand Canyon and the other person's in a helicopter. So I'm just like, you know, so we need the level playing field and the barriers to go down. But we spent far too much time talking about the barriers coming down and not this other sense of equalization because we've just kind of been like, okay, presuming that some people showed up to the Monopoly game five decades late, let's let's have equality. That's just ridiculous. There's no properties left. There's, <laughs> you, you go from one spot to the next just paying somebody. I'm just like, we need to talk about rebooting the game. We need okay. to talk about the, that, that leveling. Okay. Now, having put it that way, that's a, that's a slightly more nuanced view now than what, than what I was hearing during our last conversation when we had our first pass at this. Having put it the way you just put it, take us back now to an interpretation of what the 13 percenters are all about and what they're asking for. And let's just, let's just see if there's like a, another way to spin that position that isn't as easy of a target as maybe it seemed to be last time. That's good. Yeah, I think um, framing it in that manner. Actually, I, I think in many respects, if you're asking for basically the demographic stranglehold is black folks should get 13% of everything, 13% of the land, 13% of the profit. It seems like if 13% of the ass kickings, it seems like what gets you to the 13% is you need to knock down the barriers and you need to have some recalibration or, or compensation for these historical inequities in order to let someone kind of like roll at that pace of getting 13% of everything. So it seems like um, the 13% acquiring it, okay, well, okay, we're getting, we're getting 40% of the, of the shootings. Okay, so we need, to, we need to calibrate that down. We way below 13% in terms of land ownership, so we need to raise that up. So it seems like with that 13% baseline, that would then move things around. And it's interesting, right? Because in the current context of this conversation, um, saying that Blacks should get 13% sounds almost like everybody should be equal in the sense that demographically, we would all be equal. That if you're this percentage of the population, then you should be extracting that much. You should also be putting that much in. So there's this strong sense of, um, equalization that comes from this demographic discussion, which I don't quite hear when I, t when I hear people talk about police brutality. It's like, yeah, we 13% of the population, we're getting 40% of the shootings. That's just wrong. So I'm like, okay, so what I'm hearing from you, brother, is like, oh, if you were 13% of the deaths, you'd be fine. And then you wouldn't be talking. And I think that's kind of where it is, but we've now pushed it. It'd be like, okay, let's just not think of the ass kickings. Let's think of land. Uh, yo, okay. Um, you want to talk about land? Okay, so black people should have thirteen percent of the land. But if that's not what you mean, then we need to figure out exactly when the thirteen percent applies and when it doesn't apply. And so that's what I like about this current conversation because it's then making you think. Okay, damn, that thirteen percent thing sounded reasonable in the context of policing and police violence, but I don't know about land. Uh, <laughs> it was like he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that's a different dynamic. But I think that's a direct implication of this equality argument that's motivating these conversations regarding police violence. Mm, nice, man. So what that does then is it, it gives us a way to maybe spend the 13% in, 
vision of what a just future should entail that maybe you can get behind science. Mm. But the thought is that if I get behind it, I'm going to want to extend it yeah. to other domains. Yeah. And then the question is, is that something we really are, are prepared for? We certainly mm. don't have it right now when we look around, if we just do the math. True. So if we with that, then let's go ahead and be with that. But let's be with it in these other domains as well. Is, so is that I mean, kind of... I'm still not with it. I'm still not yeah, with okay, it in, yeah. the, okay. in the sense that I'm against police violence. Yeah. I'm against I'm against societal violence. I'm against violence. So yeah. it's like anything yeah. that has any, I don't want any proportion of violence to be distributed against anybody. Okay. So I'm just kind of like, you know, so that's that's just kind of that position there. But Beautiful. Um, I think it's I think it's useful to kind of push it though, so we can figure out exactly where and where this demographic argument does work or doesn't fit or where it Beautiful. becomes inconsistent or becomes problematic. All right, I'm gonna get some sleep now. That I'm gonna get some sleep. That that helps, man. I had some restless nights, man. Because we, we let we, you up on that. We we left that out there, man, unresolved. But now I can rest easy. Okay. okay. So okay. this is a nice segue. Science says I'm against violence. Now I don't know if it means that you're a pacifist. You know, so you you'll tell me what the terminology is. But so science science is against violence. So let's take that now as a strategy for thinking about just futures. Just future should be about the eradication of violence. Okay. Um, right. And, uh, and so now the question is, okay, well, well, there are a lot, there are different forms of violence. Let's start with political violence, science. So, mm. so what is political violence? Can you give us some examples of political violence science? And presumably mm. in doing this, you're going to be illustrating for us concretely instances of the kinds of violence that you are against and you yeah. want to eradicate. So let's Definitely. just start with political violence. Definitely. Um, so yeah, as, as you, as you identify, there's many different types of violence. Um, political violence is normally, it's normally thought of as being, first off, it's about politics. So it's about the direction of the territorial unit. It's about who leads it. It's about who we are, who we see ourselves as. It's about what institutions are leading. It's about um, what specific individuals are involved, what policies, what interventions are involved. And so anything that's concerning those elements, it's concerning, it's concerning politics. The violence part is then really about in the sense of kind of like personal integrity. So the, the, the body is somehow affected. The body is impacted or threatened. Um, less so psychological in the political violence sense, although PTSD could perhaps fit in there in some way, shape or form. But I think personal or bodily integrity is like is like a thing in political violence. Um, actors could be anybody. Right. It could be the state engages in political violence because it's inherently political or some non-state actor. Um, is engaged in behavior that could have political implications in the sense that it affects ideas, institutions, or, or leaders. And so you could have clearly societal violence. So um, <laughs> a cousin of mine tried to jack me up in the village and had surrounded me with um, two brothers on either side as they were trying to take my watch. He didn't realize he was my, he didn't realize my cousin until I, until I identified him by name. I'm like, yo. And he's like, oh. What's up, Christian? And then he, he recognized me. I'm just like, so that's societal violence. That's criminal violence, right? There's no there's no politics involved. I was not a political individual. It's not about changing institutions. It was not about changing policy. Um, so different types of violence. Um, and so 
um, you have different types of violence that would kind of emerge from that, right? Which would be you'd have anti-state, um, a riot, protest, terrorism, insurgency, revolution, insurrection. Um, that's individuals not in government trying to influence some aspect of government by threatening or engaging in um, um, bodily activity. Now, clearly that gets lumped with property, right? Which becomes like a huge conversation later on as um, property becomes something that is also political in nature, either by its, um, either by its location. So in the context of the capital, uh, the, the building itself is viewed as being political and thus violating that space becomes an illegal, illegal act um, or a treasonous act, in fact. Um, um, or, or the idea that state is supposed to protect property, which is a, 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 which is a different, a different dynamic as well. But that could be viewed as being a political challenge in the sense that it's viewed as being one of those sacred things that states will protect. Um, and then you have pro or for state violence, and that would be enacted by political authorities against those subject to their rule um, for the purposes of maintaining the ideas, institutions, interventions, or individuals in power. Um, genocide, atrocities, human rights violation, one-sided violence, or all the counters, counter-riot, counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency, counter-revolution. Um, <laughs> political violence in two minutes. I, I think that would be, yeah. uh, that'd be my starting point. I'm like, there's a lot. Okay. Okay. So let me, let me, let me work with that political violence in two minutes. Right. So, I mean, that, that two minute version sounded to me fairly formalistic and somewhat status in its flavor. Yeah. Now, let me, let me, let me, let me sort of give you another range of cases and, and you tell me if it makes sense to apply the notion of political violence in these cases. So you and I are both academics, which means, you know, we spend a lot of time in, in universities and universities are broken down in different ways. I mean, one unit in the university is the department. So you're a political scientist. I'm a philosopher. We're members of our respective departments and language that we might often hear about is department politics, right? Uh, and it's something, for example, people that are, that are more junior in, in the academy have to always be concerned about it as they negotiate their way up the academic totem pole, right? Making sure that they don't, you know, run afoul of, of the department politics in a way that, that they can be penalized for before they have the security of tenure. Mm -hmm. um, you can work in another job setting and you hear people talk about office politics, right? Um, you can work in, you know, in, in, you know, uh, you can find yourself in, in social movements, even in social organizations and have people talking about the politics of the movement or the politics of the organization. Um, during, as you know, during the 60s, the Black Power Movement, there's a lot of politics going on within the Black Power Movement about the role of uh, Black masculinity uh, and the position of, of Black women um, in the Black Power Movement. And so there was all the politics of Black Power that was internal. So question, are these instances of political violence, where, or, or put it like this, would it be appropriate to use the language political violence in these contexts? If so, you know, explain. If not, why not? So in the context of like department politics in the university, I'd say no, unless, for example, um, ICE agents were used to basically 
arrest a professor for some um, articulated anti-government position, and then they were roughed on they were roughed up on the way out. That would that would that would classify. I think when we had um, bans on political um, um, uh, faculty that took a political stance against the Vietnam War, um, any persecution that was used against them by the by the universities itself or by the state influencing institutions that to kind of ban individuals or fire them, um, I say that that could have that could have political ramifications. Um, less violent in the sense that um, they might not be bodily threatened, but um, their whole reputations and lives could be devastated and they could end up in a sense, um, I forget who uses the phrase, um, like socially dead. Is that Patterson maybe, Orlando Patterson? Orlando um, Patterson, social yeah. death. Yeah, um, so they can end up with, with a social death from political implications. Um, that movements are having difficulty, social movements are having arguments within, um, within their own ranks about kind of identity and so forth. Um, that doesn't seem to emanate from political violence. It could have political implications as it relates to how the organization is structured and subsequently how they end up challenging the state. Um, but again, um, I think the political violence part is when the social movement organization is challenging the state explicitly, not when they're trying to um, kind of maintain uh, their own house, so to speak. Um, similarly though, if, uh, if um, Stalin is engaged in the purging of his ranks within government, um, that will be political violence because it's a political actor against other political actors that has implications for the unit. Um, I think that captured many of your cases. Yeah. So what that does illustrate then is that the state is essential to this yes. notion of political violence. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. I think we got that. That's, they're, that's they're, absolutely. They're, they're either the, they're either the perpetrator or they're the target. Okay. Now, we need to add some complexity to this now, if we so that we have that either the perpetrator or the target. So that's good. That helps. Now, we have to get complexity now. Two two things now. Just in terms of political science, how how can we measure political violence, and how can we capture some of the complexity? Now, one piece of complexity that I think is here is political violence need not operate by targeting the body, right? It, like, so when you, if you think of the police as part of the apparatus of the political, of the, of the state, and you think of police brutality, then they're targeting the body. But certainly political violence doesn't have to operate that way, right? So... And as you, if you acknowledge that, then that's that's gesturing toward the complexity of how political violence might manifest itself concretely. So, can we speak a little bit to measurement mm. and complexity? Oh yeah. Okay. So, um, part yeah. of where you were going, or part of where I took where you were going, is um, so there's a, there's there's debates within every community, and we have some debates in the political violence community. Um, about intentionality, um, some would argue that if if my desire to um, to use force and coercion against you is undertaken to um, hinder your ability to kind of articulate your ideas about the world and so forth, because I view that as damaging. My intent is to control you, and I am an actor of the state. Um, some argue that intent matters. I'm like, I don't think you can get at intent. I don't think we could ever actually know that. So 
I'm more like you are, you are an agent of the state and thus it, it becomes political. And so this is where like uh, discussions about genocide and so forth come in. What, what was the intentionality of the Rwandan government? Okay. What was the intentionality of the U S against native Americans? And I'm like, I'm like, we don't, the, the, the information or evidential chain for proving intent is very high. So I agree with those that speak about like atrocity law. When, when people are being killed, let's stop it. Then we can figure out what it is. We shouldn't let, we shouldn't let our, our definitions of things preclude. And so um, I, I pulled, I pulled probably intentions out of some of it, but generally what we're doing um, in measuring political violence is it's kind of, it, it's who did what to whom, when, where, and why. And we're using sources, um, media, interviews with people, NGOs, governments, satellites, social media. We're using all these pieces of information to kind of answer those questions. Who did what to whom, when, where, or why? Um, so we're trying to identify kind of like what kind of actor you are in the state, police, military, paramilitary, immigration, prison. And we're trying to identify what your, what your connection is to the state. Um, or we're trying to identify how the behaviors that you're engaging in, like terrorists, terrorists, for example, how that how that challenges the state or undermines the state, or how protesters do that, for example, right? So BLM protesters were perceived as threatening because they were directly challenging the course of enforceful um, uses and monopoly held by the United States government and trying to change those particular policies. White nationalists were challenging the state explicitly because they disagreed with who was running. And they tried to kind of figure out exactly what was going on. So um, we would basically use these sort, use these different sources to kind of like put events into um, either we're actually looking at events and counting events and looking at how long they are or how big they become or how much violence is involved in them or how they spread over time or putting them into categories with like, okay, that was terrorism. That was an insurrection. That was protest. Okay. That was a genocide. Um, and then we're trying to look at the different aspects of them um, when they start, when they end, how they vary, um, do they recur? What are the after effects? What are the causes? And so those are the things that we kind of pay attention to. But the complexities involve many things, right? So there's a lot of complexity with like Rwanda, for example. Um, um, I just I just did an interview with somebody the other day, um, a fact checker for a New York Times piece that's coming out. And they, they start talking about the Rwandan genocide. And I'm just like, what? Everything starts in 1990 from an illegal invasion from Uganda that is interstate war. That's not genocide. And there was no genocide prior to the invasion. So let's call it what it is. We have an interstate war. Then they pushed their way into Rwanda. Then they're stopped. Now they're based there, but they're not from there. And so the interstate civil internationalized civil war continues again in 1994. And then a genocide is undertaken along with some other stuff. And so the labels matter a great deal because it, it relates to who do we hold? Who do we hold in blame? Who do we prosecute? Who do we treat for PTSD? Who do we view as a hero? Who do we do? It, who do we deal with as a villain? Um, so I think all those are are, are very complexing. Um, complexity complexity is added in that dimension. We also have something like so the capital for me it was just like you need to break down the parts right. When folks were in front of Trump listening to him, that was that was a contentious gathering or a rally, and then there's a march. And then there's another rally and then they pass a barricade illegally, attack a building, ransack the building, threaten individuals, kill in the process of the kind of contentious engagement that was going on. But the thing that's important and why it's complex is the same people aren't involved in all of those activities. 
different people are involved in those different activities, which then relates to how you prosecute somebody, what somebody's guilty for. If you, if you went to the first event, listened to the president speak, but you didn't engage in the others, you should not be viewed in the same category as homeboy with the horns and, you know, and on, with the spear and the, the chest out. Those are very different acts. Those are very different associations. Um, and so the complexity comes in allowing for diversity within our characterizations of the events which is not normally done because people are like, oh, the, the Capitol insurrection. I'm like, mm, that's one part of it. Or, or the Capitol riot, which makes it seem like it was something different and, and there was no organization or coordination, which riots are generally characterized as. I'm like, no, nah, there was a lot of coordination on this one. People flying in, they have places to stay, stuff like that. So um, the complexity comes in fitting things in the right bins and allowing for placement within multiple bins. Uh. Oh, that's super rich. That's super rich. Um, mm. So we've got this notion of political violence. We see that it is intimately connected with the state, which can be either a perpetrator of political violence, violence or target. And then we've got specific questions that we ask ourselves to think about who's doing what to whom and when. And as we introduce those questions, it gives us opportunity to add complexity to the events and, do, and, 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 and to allow us to avoid blanket descriptions of what's going on, which, which can be misleading. And this, this is a problem when we're thinking about how to solve a problem and where we want to ultimately get to if we don't have the right level of complexity accounted for, let us say. If you give me, if you give me one. So this is analogous to in the, in the Black Lives Matter case when mm. people were conflating protesters with so-called rioters. Mm. It's like, Everyone was identifying, saying, like, "Now nah, this is a different group of people." It's like one was engaged during the day; they they were they were open, they were protesting, they were mostly nonviolent. These other activities are taking place at night, smaller bands. This, these are not the same. These are not the same folks. But people lump them together as if, "Oh, these people are unruly now." I'm like, "No, they're different people." Um, until yeah. you can show me otherwise, um, there those are different types of contentious activities. And they're undertaken in very different ways and undertaken for very different motivations. And so that lumping, that simplification, that homogenizing is anti-complex is highly problematic. And we yeah. always need to pull stuff apart. Yeah. Now, you know that cuts both ways, science, because what you just said, you can imagine the Fox News version of that for what happened at the Capitol, right? The guy with the horns. And the bare chests and the people that were breaking the windows, that's one group of people. But that's not the same group of people as some of the other people. That I'm all for that. I, I think that's you're, right. You're, you're with that. I'm all for that. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think... I don't you think know a lot of people don't like that, though. They don't like to concede that point. Yeah, I'm sorry. They don't like law and order. I'm just like, you know, rule of law mm -hmm. mandates that we have to actually, uh, you know, punish somebody for what they've done. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if you tell me that everyone that showed up for the, for the mm -hmm. rally in front of the president knew what was going to happen. 
which I think is a big assumption. If you're going to do that, then I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe then they're all, they're all indictable, but I don't think they were. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's a, that's a statement to have on the table. Now, as we, as we shift now, just so here's a way maybe to, to, to shift because uh, we want to, we want to introduce this other idea of violence, but I don't know if I have a well-formed version of this question, but you are going to get where I'm coming from. So you and I, we, we've, we've built together in different ways. And one way we've done recently is we, we have been co-PIs on grant proposals, on a grant proposal, a major grant proposal that, of course, we didn't get. And in these last couple of months, we've thought a lot about projects, project funding, you know how you how you get how you get money from philanthropists uh, to fund research projects and scholarship. Now, one of the things I think we've observed, just to be honest, is is, is projects that have to do with political violence. Put it like this: there's an interest in funding projects that have to do with political violence. Um. Now, we can break that down. We can think about the state as the target or the state as the perpetrator, both. But when we have a look at the kinds of things, whether it's police brutality, whether it's a project that wants to put up a museum for lynching, whether it's thinking about historic instances of, of, of political race violence, these things get support. They become objects of funding, objects of study. They translate into projects. Can you say something about like why that why that might be? Now, this is a delicate thing. I know you did, I know I'm tripping you out by even putting this question on the table like this, but you why is that? And again, I'm not saying we don't need to have that going on. But but why has political violence been the thing? that big money wants to invest in? That's, that's, a, that's a real loaded question. I'm going to just concede it, brother. But, great, I'm a, but you, you're, question, the, person, you're the person I want to put it to. Yeah. Now, so I think in many respects, the kind of like 19th to 20th century is this like um, mm. growing awareness that, that political violence is just bad. It, it, takes, mm. it takes lives. It takes a toll on... Um, people's bodies, the minds, the economies, the polity, and mm. this is this is like this is. Like, I mean, philosophically, this is like you know, this is Hannah Arendt, right? This is um, on totalitarianism. This is <laughs> this is our grandmothers talking about if someone has to engage in violence and force, it's because they don't really have words. They they're weak, they're vulnerable, and I think there's been this growing awareness that it's the ultimate weapon of the weak when states engage in violence. It's like you got nothing else, and so. I think in many respects, kind of um, having projects that are trying to help us uh, identify and acknowledge what has taken place and move past it and, and, and flag it or monumentalize it in some way, shape or form is an acknowledgement of this general sentiment. It's just like, mea culpa, these actors screwed up. How do we get past them screwing up? We identify that they screw up. We have this place where we could reflect on how they screwed up and what the particularities are, and then we can move on. And so I think this admittance, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in international documents. We have great speeches from different leaders. We have 
movement organizations that are created to do it. Uh, now, the general sentiment around the justifications for state violence, I mean, there's just war theory. I mean, there's just there's so much rich ideas out there that just like, you know, we should probably not do these things. They still happen. And we're generally going to condemn them, but we probably shouldn't do them. And so it seems like it's a it's a it's an interesting moment where it's like to have a state engage in some violence against some people. You have to work, you have to you have to exert some effort to actually get to somehow that being viewed as being legitimate. And mm -hmm. so I think it's part it's intricately connected with those kind of dynamics. So I'm not sure if I actually got to your question. But no, no, that was rich. You did. That was just, you know, there's there's a lot to it. But that was a good that was a good response. And, and also a really nice setup that anticipate that anticipated my next question. And, and um, OK, so we've got. We've got this attention on political violence. We, we see it in funding, philanthropy, but we, we also see it in one of the, the most significant public debates that the United States mm. has is, is the debate around reparations. And it, and it kind of helps maybe explain why people who talk about reparations, whether it's reparations for slavery, the Japanese internment, the Holocaust, um, all kind of have a political violence angle, right? I, th I think your response also helped us make better sense of why most discussions of reparations of, of that sort have a political violence angle. And maybe you, you can you can say more specifically about why that is, but I think your your response already gave us the gave us the flavor for that. Now, what I was going to say, as you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I did this uh, interview for the Black Press, this, this show hosted by uh, Stacey Brown, and I was invited to, to, to come on and talk, uh, and it was a conversation with uh, ben, Benjamin Chavis, and, uh, and Stacey Brown you know, raised the questions. And I had written something on recent... Uh, legislation proposed by Senator Cory Booker in New Jersey uh, that has to do with getting justice for black farmers. And they wanted me to come on the show and talk a little bit about this. And I did. And our listeners can look it up. Just, just Google me and, and black press and it'll, it'll come up. You can see what I had to say on, you know, on, on that, on that issue. Uh, science, we haven't really dropped this on our listeners yet, but we got a couple of things in the works, right? And, and you know, one of the things we got in the works has something to do with this history of institutional racism against black farmers in the United States. Uh, something that is most famously associated with the Pickford versus Glickman settlement which is the largest class action settlement in U.S. history, which you and I think really gave us a blueprint for how to think about reparations. And one of the things that was significant about, or is significant, I should say, about this case is that it highlights economic violence as something that should occupy our attention and as something else that is perpetuated by the state. In, in its various guises. So, sadly, economic violence is, is not 
as much a part of the public imagination in the United States. Nor is it something that we see funded by the, by the great philanthropists, the Mellon Foundations, the, the Ford Foundations, and, and so forth. So how about we just start in with like some observations about, about this? Uh, what, if anything, does political science have to tell us about economic violence? Is it something that they theorize much? Uh, and if not, why, why is it ignored? Yeah, that's um, a lot. Yeah, we, we drop it. You see, we take a little time off. We'd be like, we come back. <laughs> I know, man, I know. Um, so on one tip, I think um, hmm. the economic violence makes me think, or the, the idea, the concept makes me think of structural violence from Johan Galtung. We'll provide a link to it. Um, and his definition is, it's violence wherein social structure or social institution may harm people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. And so here the perpetrator is not, um, they're, not wearing, they're not wearing a uniform. They ain't got a badge. It's a social structure or it could be some, it could be some social institutions wherein the connection to the state isn't really clear, right? And this is partly, this is partly how it gets decoupled from political violence because we can make that direct connection back to some political institution or public law or something. We'd be like, okay, state. But... It's a social institution that may harm people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. So political violence is all about my, my shaping your behavior, attitudes, location, and I'm explicitly trying to target you because of what you believe. Mm. This structural violence, I got nothing to do with what you believe. It's just got to do with you being negatively impacted by some social institution. So listed under structural violence is institutionalized adultism, ageism, classism, elitism, ethnocentrism, nationalism, racism, sexism, just like, so it goes in that direction. There's a whole other tradition, which is on kind of like rights, right? And so there's a whole literature on economic, social, and cultural rights. And these are socioeconomic human rights, such as the right to education, right to housing, right to adequate standard of living, right to health, victims' rights, and the right to science and culture. Now, this might sound unfamiliar to many Americans because normally the U.S. doesn't sign on under these economic and social rights issues. They don't believe Absolutely. in those. That's right. And so um, one of the reasons why we're not that familiar with these concepts is one, uh, and, and you know, Galtong is Norwegian, right? So this, this came from a Scandinavian context. And so um, structural violence came out it exists. People talk about it. It's hard, though, to figure out it's not connected to political violence, so it doesn't have that kind of direct connection. And since economic and social rights was like a casualty of like the Cold War, basically, with the West saying no and the Soviet Union and, and the, the communist countries saying yes. And that kind of like led to this divergence and allowed the United States to go in this liberal and then subsequently neoliberal path, which basically let people not have housing not have education, not have a standard of living. And so, um, so structural violence and economic violence moves in, moves in those directions, I think. Mm. So just, just so our listeners appreciate this. I mean, this is one of the things we told y'all we were going, we were going to do for y'all is, is we going to just, we're going to talk about these, these big, deep, 
problems of injustice, inequality, bringing our disciplinary knowledge, using the logic and the data to bear, to, to help us think about them. Um, but we were going to do it in a way that aimed to be accessible, but wasn't trying to water it down, right? It's going to really embrace the complexity. And we realized that for some of our listeners, I mean, this is, this is you know, it's going to require some attention, you know? Um, but I, well, that's just, that's what we have to offer, right? Now, now what, that, what that said is you should just see, we just having conversations, right? This is just science and sage really just kicking it. Like, this is kind of really how we talk to each other when y'all not listening. So in a way, like, this pod is just putting a mic on conversations that we haven't. Like, we're not really just doing this for y'all. We just letting y'all in to, to the conversation. Y'all just like, you could be a fly on the wall. So just know that we're going to scratch the surface on something like what we just did. And we're probably going to come back to it. We're going to hit it again. We're going to just keep grinding at it to try to get some understanding. That's just what we do. And we're so happy that y'all taking time out of your busy day, your schedule, your lives to follow us, especially knowing that this is not like an easy lift. <laughs> we know that. But we, that's why we appreciate y'all. We, we, we got a core set of listeners now, and we so much appreciate you taking time to be the fly on the wall to hear what we got to say. And hopefully it can connect with some of the stuff you think about in your own life. So, so that said, I'm saying that because science just dropped some heavy stuff and we can't even break it all down right now. It's just, I, I, I ain't even going to try. But I'm just telling y'all, we're going to get back to it. But what I do want you to do, science, is quickly remind our listeners about the Ptolemy battery again. And the question I have is, do we have any results on the economic violence tip? Right. Do we get anything in there that has to do with economic as opposed to political violence? So mm. we, we kind of came to this. We came to this awareness that like um, mm. much of the information that we derive about kind of like what people think about what's going on comes from public opinion polls. Um, this then makes what questions are asked on public opinion polls incredibly important. It's just like, okay, if this is serving as a basis for which people are making decisions about what to do or how to think about things, um, what questions are being asked are really, really important. So our Ptolemy battery is really to try to push on this a little bit and ask some stuff that people have not asked before. And one of the things we asked was kind of like, do you think everything is fine, needs minor change or major change across politics, economics, and social cultural issues? It sounds like a very straightforward question, but it's a straightforward question that no one's been asking. And not only did we not only did we let people kind of like tell us which bin they were felt in, but also what specifically do you think is the problem? And subsequently, what are you willing to do about it? And so um on the economic violence bit, we touch on it a little bit in the sense that we ask a question is like, um, um, who do you think is really running things? The politicians you elect or a few others? And we don't specify those few others as being economic actors. We could do that in the next round. Um, but I think that's kind of implied. And what we discover, I thought quite surprising, 70% of the people on the right 
believe that uh, these few others are doing it and not politicians. And 74% on the left believe that someone else is running things, not the person we elect. Yo, that requires a pause. Did y'all hear that? 70% of the right, 74% on the left believe that the others are running things, where the implication is that the others are the people with the money. That's and a significant point of agreement between the left and the right. Go ahead, and, and neutrals, people who identify themselves as politically neutral, 63% believe the oh. others. So it's just like basically everybody does not believe that the people that we elect are actually running things. Now, this is relevant, I think, to the economic violence point because that suggests that the economic perpetrators that are engaging in mass firings or undermining access to housing or not allocating loans appropriately, these economic perpetrators of economic violence are believed to be having major impacts on how people live their lives. Mm. And so I think that there's a, there's, a, there's a call in our data for kind of like exploring that. Um, and then specifically on the issue of like um, what people think about the economy and what needs fixing or doesn't need fixing. Okay, well, 57% of the right think everything's fine. 57. They don't think we need to do anything. Major change, 51% of the left think needs, something needs to get changed economically. And so this is interesting because of not only juxtaposition against this who you think is running things bit, but the willingness or lack of willingness to actually engage in change across left and right. So again, that's tough. Y'all, y'all, y'all listen to this now. Science is doing the math right now. This is what science do. He do the math. So the math says a lot of agreement between the left and the right on acknowledging that the cash is ruling everything around us. Let me just put it in plain street terms. <laughs> the cash is running everything around us. But then a difference in the acceptance or rejection of that, <laughs> that's the math. The math says, look, we all agree the cash rules everything all around us. Wu-Tang was right about that shit. But we got different views about how willing we are to accept it. And of course, that's partly a function in thinking that the cash is helping you out or hurting you. So just this little snippet, tidbit, I don't know if snippet's a word, tidbit, little tidbit from the data that we're generating by posing questions in public of, of public to get public opinion knowledge that people don't pose shows us something so significant. But the takeaway is that we need to be talking more about economic violence. <laughs> That's like the bottom line. We just sat y'all down for about 50 minutes. That's the takeaway. We need to hear more about that. We need to hear more about that when we're talking about the diagnosis. That is the problem. We need to hear more when we talk about the solution the utopia, the prognosis, where we want to end up. And we need to talk more about that when we think about the means to get us from the problem situation we're in to the solution. That's where we coming from. Now, we got some good stuff in the works for y'all, as I said, that's going to give us a chance to think more squarely about economic violence and get and get this to do it in the context of thinking about reparations, 
which typically highlights the political violence. So we're going to give you something that you've already been talking and thinking about, all of you. But we're going to put another spin on it that you ain't been thinking about. And that spin is also going to bring with it a different kind of prognosis as well as a different kind of means. And see, another thing we're doing, we keep mentioning this Ptolemy stuff. It's all sprinkled throughout our whole joint. We're going to give it to you by example, by illustration. We don't need no high theory articulation of it. We could give you that too, but that's boring. You're going to tune out. We're going to give it to you as we go by illustration. Science, go ahead. What you got to say on this one? That's fantastic, man. I think I think what we I think what we confront quite frequently is um, it's suggested that people don't want complexity. It's suggested that people want simplicity. I think we're pushing against that because the problems we have aren't simple. So we do need to get some complexity. I think I think we 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 discover very clearly that part of what gets in our way are language and concepts, the way that we label things precludes further evaluation, precludes further effort. And so I think what we in our in our effort to reconstruct and then or deconstruct and then reconstruct and provide people with new tools and new labels and so forth, it gives us a way to kind of get away from some of these paralyzing labels and paralyzing movements and, and move forward. And so I think um, you like to use the word dialectic quite quite frequently. I think that works in the sense of we working through something and then trying to show people exactly how you could use a particular instrument that then propels another kind of like new insight, which chips away something and then opens up another space. And so I think that's, it's good. It's yeah, we needed this, mm. they needed it all good to recover, but economic violence, y'all, you're going to hear a heck of a lot more about it. Um, my thing is, you know, it already, you feel it already every time you read about something else that's going on in the world with something else that dislocated a whole bunch of individuals from something or didn't allow them access to something or all of us struggling to get Rite Aid or whoever to basically give us some um, vaccinations so we, we don't fall to this pandemic. I mean, like, we're all thinking about economic violence on a consistent basis. We just haven't had a label for bringing it all together. Absolutely. Well, I tell y'all, there's, there's more we could do, but like I said, it's just, a, it's a journey, right? It's a, it's a quest, right? Y'all, this is a pod called Quest, and we're on that quest together. And so eradicating economic violence, in our view, is another more challenging pathway to a just future. And we want to continue the quest with that in mind. Well, science, that's a wrap, I think, for now. Go ahead, take us home. That'll work, y'all. Peace for now. Peace for now. Peace. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingthenowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge Again. Um, that's, the lines, that's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace.